But the importance that the, the music for a silent film or any film brings to it in, in telling the audience or at least encouraging the audience how they can re- think and respond uh, to that particular uh, to that particular film makes a huge difference. Hold on, hold on a second. Hey, 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 Kerr, can you play that other piano music we were talking about? Yeah, that's more like it. Poignant and nostalgic melody was the theme to the landmark public television series, The Silent Years, composed and performed by our guest today, William Perry. This is the Silent Film Music Podcast with Ben Modell. I'm co-producer Kerr Lockhart, and this is episode 51, in which Ben sits down to have a broad-ranging conversation with legendary silent film accompanist and composer William P. Perry. Mr. Perry attended Harvard and studied music with Paul Hindemith, Walter Piston, and Randall Thompson. For 12 years, he was chief piano accompanist, music director, and composer-in-residence at the Museum of Modern Art, where he created scores for more than 200 silent features in the museum's collection. In addition to his work on the silent years, he produced other programming for public television, including a Peabody Award-winning series of films based on the works of Mark Twain, for which he also wrote the scores. His Broadway musical The Wind in the Willows, which starred Nathan Lane, was nominated for a Tony for Best Score. He continues to compose large-scale concert works for symphony orchestra, many of which are available on recordings for the Noxos record label. But more of that later. Ben, I know Bill Perry has been both a friend and a bit of a role model for you. How did you meet? In the fall of 1981, I began accompanying silent films for the film history classes while I was a film production major at NYU. I didn't know what I was doing, so I made a point of trying to meet and speak with everyone in New York City who was doing this. My first stop was, of course, the Museum of Modern Art to meet William Perry. I'd heard his brilliant piano scores for the many silent films I'd watched on WNET Channel 13 on the Silent Years series when I was a teenager. I had heard Bill live at MoMA several times as well, where he'd enthusiastically burst through the door near the piano in the Titus I Auditorium to take his opening bow. Bill and I spoke after one of his performances, and then we spoke a few more times by phone shortly after that. It meant so much to me to meet one of my silent movie heroes at the dawn of my interest in film accompaniment. We've stayed in touch over the years, and every once in a while, We'll catch up over really good coffee when I'm up where he lives in Massachusetts. Bill is 92, although it appears no one's told him, and I felt it was important to get his stories about his work and his craft, not just for me, but for other film accompanists and for the many, many fans of his work who were introduced to the great feature-length silent films that he scored. This episode is the first half of our interview, 
and the second part will be posted as episode 52. I should mention that you may notice a slight anomaly in the audio. I had tested everything several times, but it it seems that some digital gremlins crept into my MacBook during the recording, and it made the sound seem like we were recording not in his living room, but in some hallowed marble hall, which in a way seems appropriate since William Perry's place in the trajectory of the resurgence of interest in silent film is so important. And now on to that conversation recorded in Mr. Perry's home in August of 2022. One of the things I I find fascinating when I talk to people and tell them what I do is they're astounded that I'm doing this. And they, they ask, how did you get into this? Like it was a deliberate decision. And everyone I know uh, has a very different story about how they got into it. Um, many of the companies working today, it, was, it usually involves a student, a student film club at a university uh, or, or something like that. But your trajectory was very different getting into becoming a, a film accompanist. Um, it was. It came out of the blue. I'll give you a little bit of background and uh, uh, tell you that, first of all, I did have a very strong music education. Um, I worked with folks like Paul Hindemith, Walter Piston, wow. Randall Thompson, mm-hmm. some of, some major composers. So uh, that part of my background meant that there was a lot of music going on in in my life. Had you? Gone, sh- I'm sorry. Had you gone to a musical conservatory? Uh, this was uh, the music department at Harvard. Oh, and um, and I had an opportunity to do a lot musically there. I had my own symphony orchestra when I was 18. Wow. Including some members of the Boston Symphony and so on. So uh, I had a a life of conducting and uh, producing stuff. And um, so that part of what would go into accompaniments was was very strong. Yeah. Um, I... uh, Basically, uh, was doing music at that time in the classical sense, finding things in Europe that had never been performed here, things of that sort. The the one uh, Gilbert and Sullivan that is never done. Mm-hmm. That uh, this is with your your own orchestra. That uh, yeah, that type of, type of work. Um, and I was uh, writing shows. Um, I. Um, uh, went into service, not all that voluntarily, but uh, <laughs> uh, but was assigned to Germany, which is a very nice musical uh, uh, country. And what years would, would this uh, have been? That was uh, in 50, uh, 51, 2, and 3. Mm. Um, and oddly enough, the army actually took a look at my background and and didn't put me in some weird place. They actually put me into entertainment business. Oh, good. Uh, which, <laughs> which I found uh, kind of comforting because a friend of mine uh, worked uh, as a salesman for Dr. Pepper and was put in the medical corps. Oh. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so they at least uh, had it right and. Uh, I got to work with the Seventh Army Symphony. I wrote a uh, 
uh, a musical that uh, toured Europe for about five years. Wow, uh, what was the name of it? It was called Xanadu, much in advance of, of the Xanadu that ended up on Broadway. <laughs> and it had themes about dope dens and so on that would never, <laughs> never be uh, allowed today. But it was... Uh, uh, but it was a good deal. And the army said that uh, I could uh, use anyone that was in service. So my orchestra included people from the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra and others of that sort. Mm. Um, there were uh, singers and dancers that we pulled from the South Pacific to come over and perform uh, in Germany. So mm. <clears throat> that was a that was a a, a very a very exciting time, mm. and uh, a good use, I guess, of of what I had been doing as a civilian. At any rate, I came back to New York, went to work for a large, very large uh, advertising agency, um, became a director of, and producer. Of various things, um, I did the of television programs, uh, television programs and commercials. Hmm. I uh, directed the first coast to coast color commercial uh, to go on television. What was it for? Uh, it was on The Price Is Right. Oh, and I think it may have been for Lux Soap. <laughs> um, and uh, I did the first musical video commercial for Jackie Gleason. Oh. I worked with Jack Benny oh. uh, and so on. So and I was... And you were working as a musical director or as a director I was, film director I was television. doing both. Both, okay. I was hired as a musical director, but I ended up uh, doing straight television direction. Wow. Uh, and that was fine. Um, but at the same time, it was a long commute from where I lived, and uh, I, at one point, was starting to tire a little bit of ad agencies yeah. and products. Yeah. And at that point, I had a call one day from Paul Killiam, who may have appeared in these podcasts before. Oh, yes. Um, uh, interesting chap who I had known, he was from Harvard, older than I was, but I had written a musical for him, and I had done some odd uh, musical jobs, and he called up one day and said, what would you think about being a music director at Museum of Modern Art? They, <laughs> they have an opening. And I said, uh, that's something I'd like to look into. Mm. And uh, so uh, he f uh, talked to the powers that uh, be at that time, uh, to Eileen Bowser and some of the wonderful Larry Kardish, the mm. people who were there. And uh, they said, come on over, and they put up Broken Blossoms and said, now play. Wh oh, wow. And now, <laughs> had, you, had you seen Broken Blossoms Never. before? And, no. And had you had much exposure to silent film? No, uh, I had virtually none. Wow, I knew it as as uh, obviously as a as a part of the whole film background mm. and uh, uh, several of the iconic things I had sure. had seen. But as far as having any uh, any knowledge, no. Yeah, and what year was this? Was this this was in '69? So this is after Arthur Kleiner had retired and Charlie Hoffman had been there for a year or two. Yeah, that's, and, and there was no overlap between Hoffman and you. 
Um, no, not really. Yeah. I think he left and I and I came yeah. on. And so you you came in and played for Broken Blossoms, <laughs> absolutely cold. Um, uh, Paul to- uh, Killiam told me a bit about it, so I knew that some chinoiserie yes. <laughs> would be yes. uh, be required. Yes. But it was nice because I became a dear friend of Lillian Gish later on. And, oh. So that uh, that was fine, and they made me an offer, and uh, I did one of those things that you would love to do. I I put my hat on one noon at my ad agency, and the receptionist said, "We'll see you after lunch." And I said, uh, "You really won't, because I'm not <laughs> coming back after lunch." And I never and I never did. Wow! 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 Um, so I'm just curious. Uh, what was your improvisational background? Had you done much of that? Because if you're, when you played Cold for Broken Blossoms, you obviously had to create the score while it was oh, happening. Yeah. Yeah. And were you drawing on classical canon and stuff that you knew, or were you completely making it up? No, it was a, it was part of my musical arsenal hmm. that uh, came to me naturally. Wow. That. Uh, I was used to taking tunes and spinning them around and and turning them into sambas or marches or whatever. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, and my musical training had been strict enough that I uh, uh, could handle scales in G flat as well as G major yeah. and, and so on. So yeah. I was never a great pianist, but I could make my way around the keyboard well enough to express what I had in the head. Yeah. So uh, also, I uh, I think I was fairly quick at figuring out where a scene was going to go, and particularly if there were the intertitles that suggested, yeah. um, this is a joke set up and it's going to have a payoff in a moment. Yeah. I could I could be absolutely ready for that. Yeah, and uh, and and work with it accordingly. Yeah, um, I should mention a little bit about Killiam here, simply because he was a, a, a major part of how I learned the trade. Hmm. Um, he had been a showman, uh, had run uh, had run a nightclub. Uh, uh, I've heard of that, and this is a, a place where was Jack Lemon the pianist. Jack Lemon was his pianist. Yeah, he was the pianist. And uh, uh, old BB Astorwall. I could go through <laughs> a, a, a whole list of mm. the uh, of the performers mm. who who went uh, who went through there. It was called the Old Nick, and he was the master of ceremonies. And as part of the show routine, he had. Uh, taken up an interest in what he saw as the humor of silent films, hmm. especially when they were uh, cranked at a speed that made everything look kind of uh, funny. Yeah, and, the, the earlier films when run at quote-unquote yeah, sound and, speed. Uh, uh, as yeah. recently as two days ago, knowing that you were going to drop by, <laughs> I uh, f- found a piece of video of, of the Steve Allen show, which was before Jack Parr and hmm. Carson and so on, where Paul Killiam had done a stand-up thing oh. uh, using silent film clips at a rapid pace and yeah. do, doing a, a talk-over. Yeah. And he turned that into a, a syndicated series called Silence, Please. Oh, that, yes. That being in a jocular sense. 
When he found religion, and I'd like to think it was about the time that I joined him, and he started taking an interest in different aspects of silent films on a much more serious level. Yeah. Um, and he found the, the Malcolm's family that was deep in restoration. Mm -hmm. He made a deal. Um, he had some money available and made a deal for uh, D.W. Griffith uh, estate films, which was split with MoMA. Mm -hmm. uh, so they, they were co-owners of uh, Heaven's Intolerance. Sure, and, yeah. Uh, Orphans of the Storm and so on. Yeah. And he got interested in restoring these, tinting them yeah. uh, as they, as the more uh, expensive ones would have been, and uh, asking me to give them permanent scores. Uh, the piano was we weren't about to afford orchestras, yeah, and so sure, on. Sure. So that was done on the piano, and um, out of that. Uh, came the interest on, on the part of PBS of doing the series that we called The Silent Years. And so, so there were things that you recorded for Killiam that were not, that preceded The Silent Years. That's correct. Oh. Uh, in fact, we went uh, into, uh, into The Silent Years because we had built up a, a, enough of restorations uh, mostly with my piano, but some Gaylord Carter, uh, oh, some yes. organ yeah. uh, uh, work. And uh, when we had uh, a dozen of them, uh, we decided we could put them uh, together and uh, went to PBS. And one of those lucky breaks that we just uh, happened to uh, approach the person at the right time, we got Orson Welles as the host. Yes, wow. Uh, which gave it some some clout. Sure, surely. sure. Um, Orson, just uh, as a side issue here, had fallen on bad times. He was doing sherry commercials. Oh yes, for Cresta Blanca. Oh yeah. And uh, so uh, he was more than available. Yeah. If you paid him some money sure. to do these. Sure. And, was he attached before you approached PBS, or was, or did the PBS? No, no, first. we brought him in. Oh, and, okay. And that uh, that gave them certainly an incentive. Uh, oh, as a, okay. as a as a host, mm. and uh, he wrote all his own material and had a lot of personal stuff that he could say about mm. uh, uh, about the films and the actors in them, especially. Douglas Fairbanks, senior, was a friend of my father's. He was also a friend of mine. He didn't know that, but I knew it, and I knew him. And what a thrill the occasional glimpse was. I remember my father telling me, in fact, showing me the place where Doug had jumped from a balcony over some stairs and into the lobby of the old Imperial Hotel in Tokyo in some moment of... Uh, of flamboyant high spirits, the sort that uh, he was to make famous in films in the, in the costume swashbucklers that bore his name. But they came later in his career. The Mark of Zorro began as a sort of offbeat experiment. It had another title at first, uh, The Curse of Capistrano, according to my notes. Anyway, to his surprise and the surprise of that great director who made it, Fred Niblo, uh, 
It turned out to be a big critical success and a great commercial smash. Of course, there were a million imitations, but here's the first and the inimitable Mark of Zorro. Uh, so <clears throat> we got sponsorship and, and uh, that became very successful. Four years later, we did a second series I, with Lillian I remember Gish. I had the poster hanging on my door. We never never missed any, any, any episode. It was the way people my age and from that generation, the 70s, that was really the first time we were not only getting to see silent film, especially on a national level, but in a way that where their films and the music took the films seriously. And yeah. so I, I definitely remember remember those, those So this was uh, this uh, uh, this uh, change of of outlook on uh, Killiam's part was uh, was terrific, and he he was extremely serious mm. and, uh, about these things and mm. and worked closely uh, with the museum. So, so that, that uh, the silent years uh, gave me a, a chance to go into all sorts of uh, other areas using my music, and yeah. I never rather looked back on advertising. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Again, with the the silent years scores, where were they were recorded, and what kind of an instrument were you using? Um, they were recorded at a small studio called Empire. Uh, which was, um, I think, 45th Street. Um, it was a not great piano, but I insisted on careful tuning. Uh -huh. And uh, we did them reel by reel. So 20, 20 minute reels at a time or 16 millimeter, 40 minute reels? Uh, no, we were doing the shorter reels. So okay. I, I had to have music that, that had a, a little stop to it. So that we could then go to the next reel pick yes. up and, and there was no way of doing a segue because these were in 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 chunks yeah. as as it were um but had some good uh, good editor editing people and mm -hmm. so on who were able to to make that happen yeah. handsomely and uh, uh those uh, films of course uh, were not uh, an improvisation that the, the, that was serious stuff because yeah. it was going to go out and uh, have some life expectancy. Uh, so I studied those uh, really very very carefully developed themes uh, carefully. Yeah. But it's the point uh, at working on those that I came up with what I think may have been technically my major contribution to scoring uh, silent films or for that matter any other other films and that was that I developed and insisted for myself on developing title music that would establish the mood and the quality and the impending action of the film right from the start. But, and by title music, you mean for the I main titles? I meant a major theme. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, as Max Steiner uh, did and the other greats in, 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 the, in the later music uh, uh, form. Music that I could bring back mm. throughout the film, yeah. sometimes altered, but uh, always... Uh, Tying it together yeah. and uh, giving it an integration. And even uh, I found that a really good film 
could be made into a, a great film mm. uh, if, the, if, the, if you brought the music back at the right spots and in the right way. And I remembered so well uh, when uh, uh, Otto Preminger uh, hired uh, David Raxon to do the score for Laura. And uh, he, Raxon played the, his theme for Laura and said, uh, uh, how often or do you want to have this in the film, Mr. Preminger? And Preminger said, I want it everywhere. Yeah. Oh, and it's, it's everywhere in that film. <laughs> it, it is, there, there isn't a moment in that no, film that it's a great theme. Oh, sure. Uh, but um, I, th- uh, I found that not just could you, could you do something for a great film, film the way people did for Gone with the Wind and mm-hmm. so on, but a not very good film could be made better that if you took your your basic thematic music, it could be love music or an exciting title or whatever, and played it at the right places, it would seem to the viewer that the director had put together a really tight, well-edited film because the music kept seeming that the craft that he had used there made, made this quite an acceptable piece. Yeah. And it... Uh, it just was something that uh, that I uh, made as my my credo, and uh, throughout uh, my Silent Years day, uh, e- even with a lesser film, I always had a going in theme that would open the film and it would close the film and it would be heard at specific places. Yeah, it could be a comedy riff, yes, or it could be love music, or it could be Three Musketeers yeah. music, and so on. That's one of, the, one of the things that I remember really noticing about your scores is that they came out strong and welcomed you, and let you know you are going to have a good time, and let you know right away what kind of a picture this was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, it, yeah. It's, it was, it's really nice. As a great example of those Max Steiner-style, melodically-driven themes that Bill Perry wrote for The Silent Years, here are some of the themes for The Mark of Zorro.
but it it reminds me uh, of a of a moment uh, where I uh, where I was playing a film called Xander the Great, which is Marion Davies yes. and so on. Yes. And it leads me into just commentary about what happens when you're handed a film that you know nothing about and you're not going to have a chance to see it yeah. and so on. So I was at the museum one day and uh, uh, the film on, on, on demand was Xander the Great. Uh, I spoke to the film department. It had just come in. Nobody had seen it. Mm. Um, and they weren't sure what it was about. And uh, I asked the projectionist, did you run any of this? I'm Xander the Great, what is it about? Yeah. And he said, I have the slightest idea. Well, what do you think? That sounds to me like a strong man in a circus. Ah, okay. Somebody else said, this is historical. This is Alexander the Great. This is a take on that. So uh, comes film time. And uh, the lights go down, and uh, the screen lights up, and I go into a theme that would fit a strong man. Yes. Or uh, Alexander the Great's like Exodus or yeah. something. He's big film. Yeah. Well, of course, Xander is a three-year-old kid, yeah. a little orphan who can't pronounce his name Alexander. And I'm playing... As if this is the birth of a nation yeah. or something. So what you do is you quickly run and hide musically. Yes. You do a little transition, and suddenly you're playing delicate, uh, light-hearted things. Yeah. And, yeah. and leaving the world of grandness beside. It, um, it's always the, the thing that I look back on with, uh, with kind of a treasured thing about what happened in the instances where... Uh, where you didn't really know what it was you were going to be playing because it was expensive to screen stuff. Yeah. And the, the theaters at MoMA were always in use. And uh, so there was a lot of, of playing at sight. One of my favorite moments uh, was when they scheduled a film of Abel Gantz coming in from Switzerland. Mm. Um, uh, this was La Rue. Ah. And um, nobody had seen it. They knew it was long, that it was going to be two and a half to three hours. And, yes, uh, yes, it, yes. So... Uh, <laughs> Came the evening and we started at, at uh, eight o'clock and I positioned myself mm -hmm. to see if I'd have a little digital strength left your at fingers, the end yeah. of that. It's always <laughs> yeah. a thought. Yeah. And somewhere about two hours in, the little light that connected the player to the projectionist. Oh, this, there's a little. There was. I, I remember they had it in the booth. It was a handset. A little with, little that you hand could communicate phone. You with could the booth. Pick it yeah. up. And he said, um, the remaining reels have just arrived. <laughs> I said, I beg your pardon. He said, yeah, we've got, I forget, he numbered the, what they were. At any rate, at uh, 12.15, I was still playing. Wow. And uh, I was playing at, uh, some of it one hand at a time. Yeah. While the other was, would be shaken out yeah. and rested <laughs> yeah. and so on. Yeah. And I think we finally ended up at 12.30 or maybe 20 of one nonstop. Wow. Uh, there were three people left <laughs> yeah. in the audience. Yeah. One was asleep. 
there were two people in the back row, and I'm not going to ask what they were doing, yes. but they were on their, on their own. Yeah. And uh, there was one film buff who was sitting there well, they're always actively watching. Absolutely, yeah. But uh, it tells you that uh, stamina is part of the uh, requirements of the trade. Because uh, the most dramatic thing you can do is to stop playing. Silence is the biggest uh, thing that you can uh, bring to a film if you want to astonish your audience. Oh, absolutely! And so you you, you really can't uh, can't stop. And yeah. that that was a a special deal. The other th another thing that, that uh, goes into this art form, and I shouldn't be mentioning this to you, okay? Because <laughs> these are all things you know, but. Uh, uh, you really don't want to take your eyes off the screen. Oh, no. I tell people that's my sheet music up there. Uh, and uh, because things can happen. And this involved a film that I think was called Moran of the Lady Letty. It was a Valentino yes. Yes. film. It was a seafaring film. Yeah. I had never seen it. And uh, so I was playing along. There were two ships uh, on the water, and I was playing kind of Mendelssohn's uh, calm sea, prosperous yes. voyage type stuff, mm -hmm. and a pedal got stuck. Oh. And, I mean, I, I, and yeah. I had to take a, all of about five seconds, and I finally freed the pedal and went back to playing, and the two ships had become one ship. And I, for the life of me, had no idea what had happened. At the end of the film, the projectionist said, I'm a little bit surprised because uh, you're usually pretty, uh, pretty adept at doing stuff. I mean, when that sh uh, ship sank, you, di you, didn't, uh, you didn't express yourself musically at all. <laughs> so uh, that, uh, that's what happens yeah. when... Uh, when that takes uh, takes place, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, your your time at MoMA because unlike today, you were there as a full time full time full time you, you were there yeah so right now it's whenever silent film is programmed they call somebody or email somebody but you were there did you have an office the way Arthur Kleiner did? I uh, I didn't actually uh, have an office I worked. Uh, in and out of the projection booth and and so on uh, i but i was a full-time employee mm. uh, with all of the uh, benefits and actions that a full-time employee does that was eliminated after i left i think probably as much as an economic measure oh sure uh, that they could freelance uh, people uh, but it meant I was uh, on call. There was no uh, hesitancy about uh, putting a film up without music because they had they had you had had that post uh, yeah, yeah. there. And how often, at least initially, when you started in 1969, how often were you playing every week? Would you would you say? Um, it of course varied some because uh, there was the standard playing. There were silent films every week, maybe. Uh, three days and sometimes more. If it was a special thing, uh, the 
films of John Ford, the silent films of John Ford, or something mm. like that, then there'd be a, a, sometimes two and three times a day. Mm. Uh, and they, they enjoyed doing that sort of... Uh, sort of uh, thing where they did coll collective... Uh, yeah, like a series that would run for a while. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, and uh, then they would do films where they brought in uh, uh, special people, uh, which reminded me of, of one of those special people that I got to know was King Vidor. Mm. And um, we were... Uh, we were playing The Crowd, which is a... Oh, film that I oh. so dearly and I, love. I show it to my students at the end of the semester every yeah. year. It's a brilliant film. So, so brilliant. Yeah. And I, so I sat with Vidor and I said, I want to talk to you about this film because I, it's an interesting thing musically. Mm. I said, to play this film, your cuts, your edits fit musical phrases in a way that I find absolutely astonishing that I will be playing maybe four bars or something, mm -hmm. and your cuts and your dissolves are working with that music and vice versa. And I said, that that's such an incredible thing and so much appreciated. And he said, well... Nobody's asked me this before, but I edited it. I edited the entire film to Tchaikovsky's Pathetic Symphony. Aha! Uh -huh. And he had used that as his soundtrack when he was editing. And of course, Tchaikovsky knew something about phrasing. Oh, absolutely. And that, that just astonished me. That's really, oh, wow, wow. Very, very exciting. Yeah. And of course, when you do make films, lots of editors do like to have temporary tracks. Sure, as a guideline. That, uh, that, uh, that reminds me of something. Of This is now a sound anecdote. <laughs> but uh, a very nice film called Breaking Away about bicycle riding oh. in Indiana. Yeah. And you may, may recall that. Um, and they had signed up a, compo a composer, I won't mention by name, uh, to do the score. And they shot the film and it was editing time and the editor said I want something that uh, will go with the it's an Italian bicycle team yeah. and go out and get me some Italian music and uh, his assistant came back with Mendelssohn's Italian Symphony and so on and he started editing to Mendelssohn and uh, it worked out very well. Yeah. And uh, at the end of the editing, the composer came in from Los Angeles with his score, and everybody was very disappointed. <laughs> the film didn't seem to play yeah. at all. And so, of course, they released it with that, with, with that little practice track yeah. that the editor had used, and Mendelssohn runs all through the film, and it made it very stylish. Yeah, but it really, it really works. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely, yeah, it definitely so does. Works.
th- those things are, are, are yeah. kind so, of So you would get a schedule of, and you would, uh, of, of films and you would prepare your scores at, at home and then come in and play however many times a week it was? Uh, yes. Um, uh, my uh, partner in those days was very helpful uh, and uh, would take notes mm. and things of that sort. Yeah. Um, I occasionally did uh, sketches if they were going to be helpful, but uh, normally I, I like the freedom of playing with with the film. Yeah. And so you were improvising for most of most of the I scores. I was uh, the the main themes. Yes. I came in with, mm. but otherwise was improvising, and this uh, leads me to a a thing that I find of kind a kind of interesting. Um, we, I was uh, playing a chaplain festival, mm. and I think it was, maybe it was City Lights. At any rate, they were doing an afternoon performance. It wasn't the Gold Rush, but uh, a- afternoon performance and an evening repeat. Mm. And the afternoon performance, uh, I played... Quite tender, sympathetic music. Chaplin always sat right on the edge of of comedy on the on one side and pathos on the other. Yes. I played the pathos, and uh, there were a couple of handkerchiefs came out here and there a tear and very successful. Mm. In the evening, same film. I played for comedy. Mm. The only thing that changed was the score, mm. and the audience laughed. They. <laughs> No tears. Ah. They, they were having a howling good time, and it was just what the music was telling them, how they should relate to the film. And what prompted you to switch gears for the evening show? Just the vibe in the room or just your own sensibility? It, it, it was curiosity, uh, because uh, uh, Chaplin, who played bad violin, uh, <laughs> um, did did have that kind of sentimental side to him. Yeah. And I really wanted to experiment a little to see if, if that could be laid on a film that also had a lot of laughing yeah. moments yeah. in it. And uh, I, I don't know if it was fair to the audience, but both audiences enjoyed Sure. Uh, the film and and when I came to score the Gold Rush, for example, later that was very much in my mind that you want to be sure that you mix the comedic elements with the p- pathetic ones, yes. because yeah. that's really what he had in mind. Yeah, yeah. To demonstrate that Chaplin-esque blend of comedy and pathos, here are a few themes from William Perry's score for The Gold Rush as heard on The Silent Years, a score arguably superior to Chaplin's own. Thank you. 
but the importance that, that the music for a silent film or any film brings to it in, in telling the audience or at least encouraging the audience how they can think and respond uh, to that particular uh, to that particular film yeah it makes a huge difference yeah it's it's, it's more about getting inside the world of the film than standing outside it and just matching something to what's happening on screen right yeah right That was composer and silent film accompanist William Perry in conversation with Ben Modell. There's more to come in the next episode of this podcast. Meanwhile, we do want to remind you that the Marion Davies romantic comedy Xander the Great, which Mr. Perry mentioned in his story, is available in a sparkling restoration by the Library of Congress from Undercrank Productions, complete with an original score by Ben. Mr. Perry's orchestral music is available from Noxos Music, including music for great films of the silent era, volumes one and two, Romance of the Silver Screen, and Innocence Abroad and other Mark Twain films. Ben, what's in store in the next episode? Well, Kerr, in the second half of my interview with Bill Perry, we talk some more about his craft in terms of the way he would preview films and learn specific musical idioms for different kinds of films and his work as a collaborator of sorts with the audience. We'll also hear about his friendship with Lillian Gish, and most importantly, how Bill approached his piano scores thinking orchestrally, and then how he went further years later orchestrating his piano scores for Symphony Orchestra. This has been episode 51 of the Silent Film Music Podcast with Ben Modell. It's the podcast that takes you inside the mind of someone as they prepare for perform and reflect upon performances of live musical accompaniments to silent film. I'm Ben Modell, a silent film accompanist, historian, and presenter. I'm glad you're listening to this and so glad we could share this time with Bill Perry with you. We look forward to sharing the rest of this interview. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'll see you at the silence.